0: Good morning, uh, my name is Jamie Charles. I am uh, the Senior Appellate Counsel at the Middlesex District Attorney's Office. Um, I also run our office's search warrant team. Um, and today I'm gonna to be presenting to you guys with uh, my former coworker, Gabe Pell. I'll let him introduce himself real quick.
1: Good morning, everybody. Um, thanks to Devin and Jamie, very happy to be here. Yep, former colleague of Jamie's at the Middlesex DA's Office Appellate Bureau. And now uh, I'm an assistant professor at New York Law School, but really thrilled to have a chance to come back and chat about an issue that, you know, Jamie and I talk about all the time, uh, among many other topics in the digital evidence space, the, you know, compelled production of passcodes to digital evidence and the compelled use of biometrics. Um, yep, so we're
0: going to dive right in, but first I'll just note uh, as this, this first slide indicates that uh, the content of this presentation reflects our views and not that of our employers, so anything we say today is just our own personal opinions um, on the topic.
1: And we're going to, you know, something that's not easy for me at least, uh, we're going to try to actually keep our opinions more to a minimum. One of the things that we want to be upfront about is that, you know, Jamie and I both in coming to this material, we came to it as prosecutors using it from that perspective. But our goal today is very much to present the arguments on both sides of the issue. But we do have a point of view. And sometimes I think it's, you know, it's useful to share that is, here are the arguments, here's what we think makes the most sense. But we are, you know, happy and pleased to have prosecutors and defense attorneys joining us on this webinar and want to make sure that we are exploring the contours in in the doctrine as well.
0: Um, and just a couple other brief things before we dive in I mean there is a lot of there you are going to see there is a lot of content on these slides we will provide a PDF copy of the presentation uh, for the BBA to provide after. Um, the reason a lot of these slides are so busy is because there is a lot of case law there's a lot of disagreement among circuits and within jurisdictions. Um, And we want you to have access to all that stuff. Although I think we're going to be speaking more broadly today in terms of like these are the kinds of arguments you should be making and not necessarily hewing to like the specific citations to particular cases, because there is a lot of overlap in the way the cases treat these, um, as Gabe's going to talk about in a minute. They all sort of start with a discussion of uh, the act of production doctrine and its origins, and then they kind of tend to gravitate towards Consistent though divergent positions depending on the outcome that they ultimately reach. Um, the other thing I will note, and we'll talk about this again a little bit in more detail later, is a lot of these issues are settled in Massachusetts for better or worse. Um, you know, RSJC has opined in two separate cases on the question of compelled passcodes, at least. Um, but I think, you know, if you're somebody operating in the federal state with like the federal defenders or with the US Attorney's Office, or even if you're a state, uh, prosecutor, a public defender, a private defense attorney, you know, this has not been settled by the Supreme Court. There's a lot of disagreement at the federal level. So it can still be useful to see the arguments that are being put forward um, so that you can make a claim below, create a record, potentially bring a habeas claim. Um, and also, even though it has been resolved in Massachusetts, you know, there was a functional dissent in Jones, the most recent Massachusetts case uh, by Justice Link, which has actually been essentially picked up by a lot of other jurisdictions. So there's not even unanimity, uh, at least there wasn't at the time on the court here um, in opining on these specific issues. So, um, and the last thing I'll note based on this slide, you know, there there are other avenues beyond just the basic case law to compel decryption and biometrics. Um, including the all Ritz Act, which is a federal statute that has uh, Massachusetts analog and the Communications Assistant to Law Enforcement Act. But Gabe and I are going to kind of eschew discussing discussing those today just because of our time constraints and kind of limit ourselves to the case law and how that's treated it.
1: And so, you know, the, the basic premise here that's operating behind the scenes is law enforcement has come into possession of a digital device. They are locked out of it you know, I think we're going to use the terms decryption and compelled production of a passcode interchangeably for purposes of this presentation. Obviously, there's a there's a deeper level in which those are not necessarily always the same thing, but law enforcement has this device, they want access to it, and there are technological ways to do it. And if those are not available, then we're gonna be focusing on two of these legal avenues, compelled production of the passcode or the compelled use of biometrics. And as as Jamie said, the passcode stuff is largely settled here in Massachusetts, biometrics is still a blank canvas. And so that's also going to be something interesting to talk about as we go on. So, but before we get into what's settled, uh, I want to take a little bit of a historical survey of how we got to where we are. Um, obviously, I I can nerd out on this stuff. And I think it's fascinating in its own right. But I think it's worth going into the, the case law and where we got started for two main reasons. And the first is. This is a new application of an existing doctrine. The compelled production of the passcode is a specific example of compelled production of any kind of evidence. So it's important to understand where we, how we got where we are today, what came before, because it informs how, if and how this doctrine might apply to the compelled production in the digital space. So understanding where we are, to understand where we, understand where we've been, to understand where we are and where we're going. And then, as Jamie said, the Supreme Court has not yet weighed in on the application of compelled production doctrine to passcodes or any form of digital evidence. And so to the extent it's an open question, it's really important to understand where we've been because it's possible that we will be going back to some earlier position that the courts adopted. And that's why I wanna start way, way, way back in 1886, ancient history now, but in the case called Boyd versus United States that still gets talked about quite a bit, the Supreme Court drew a very hard line on what the Fifth Amendment prohibited. And it's not going to be familiar to any of us modern practitioners because it's no longer the law. Spoiler alert there. Um, and what the court said was that compulsory production of private papers is violative of the Fifth Amendment to the Constitution. So this idea is that it doesn't just protect you from giving testimony against yourself, But it would protect you from having to turn over any hard, real evidence that could be used to to prosecute you and to incriminate you. And that's 1886. And that stays the law for a very, very long time. It starts to, to kind of weaken in the 60s, but it's still holding its own. We get Schmerber versus California, one of these kind of landmark cases from the Supreme Court that says, well, the line here is really between testimony and the production of physical evidence. So you can't be compelled to you know, communicate things, but you can be compelled to produce, let's say a handwriting sampler or to give your fingerprints or to submit to photographs, to walk, to make a gesture. And so they're starting to chip away at this idea that you, know, you don't have to participate in, in helping the government prosecute you at all. There are things that you can be compelled to do, but they're still spite, citing Boyd for the for proposition that, you can't be compelled to produce your own papers. Again, we know that that's not where the law stays. So Schmerber outlines this distinction between compelling communications or testimony on the one hand and compelling real or physical evidence on the other. And if you start to really think about this distinction, you can see that it's gonna be hard for the court to maintain that line that papers can't be compelled if real physical evidence can be. And that's ultimately what happens is we get this huge sea change in the law. And it starts with a case called Fisher, 425 US 391 in 1976, where they overrule Boyd explicitly. Say, you know, several of its declarations haven't stood the test of time, and it doesn't, the Fifth Amendment, actually prohibit the compelled production of every sort of incriminating evidence, only evidence that is testimonial and that is incriminating. And so for people who are familiar with the the Fifth Amendment, you know, doctrine generally, the Fifth Amendment applies to, you know, the the compelled is number one, production of testimonial, number two, um, evidence that is three, incriminating, compelled, testimonial, and incriminating. And that is the, the line that we get. And by the time we get to Fisher, we can compel the production of real or physical evidence, even if it would be the books and papers of a target of an investigation. And that is an important distinction that we're going to come back to when we talk about one of the hottest flashpoints in the compelled passcode production space of, does the Fifth Amendment protect privacy or only against self-incrimination? And Boyd was a privacy-oriented rationale, and the more modern view of it, though not always hundred percent in application is that the fourth amendment protects privacy and the fifth amendment protects against compelled self-incrimination. So Fisher gets us there. Um, And then Jamie, if we can have the next slide, thank you. And so this is where we get what what we're gonna be talking about the rest of the time on the compelled production piece of this is the foregone conclusion exception. And what, what Fisher involved was um there was it was a tax case and the government wanted access to certain tax paperwork the actual possession of the tax paperwork as i recall was in the hands of attorneys or something like that but the court didn't look didn't rely on attorney client privilege they went right to the idea of we would be able to produce this if it were in the hands of the taxpayer and and here's why and it's because the existence and location of these tax papers are a foregone conclusion The target, the taxpayer in Fisher would be adding little or nothing to what the government already knew that this tax paperwork existed by conceding that he has the papers. So no constitutional rights are touched. And then here is the key language that drives a lot of this. The question is not of testimony, but of surrender. And I think if you go back to that divide that Schmerber illustrates or or highlights is there's testimony on the one hand and then there's real or physical evidence on the other testimony can't be compelled, but real or physical evidence, not only can it be compelled, but those of us who practice in the criminal space, you're probably familiar with the line that, you know, the state has the right to every person's evidence. So it's not only that it can be compelled, but you can't withhold it unless it would implicate a privilege of constitutional or other dimension. So that idea of not testimony, but of surrender is if it's not testimony, you don't have a right to hold it back. You're really just being asked to give it it up. And That's how we get the foregone conclusion exception to the privilege uh, against self-incrimination, and that is the only reason that we really have this possibility of doing compelled passcode production. So, if Boyd from 1886 were still the law, this presentation would be over at this point, right? There'd be nothing more we could say or do. You can't compel the private papers. Um, You certainly can't, you know, extend that doctrine to a passcode. But because Fisher overrules Boyd and starts letting the government compel production of certain pieces of paper and other kinds of physical evidence, we get to this point where we ask, well, how, and and if at all, does that apply to the compelled production of a passcode to to digital evidence? And there's some themes in the case law that we're gonna talk about, but I wanna start here with the basics of what this doctrine is. So it's often referred to as the act of production, doctrine. We get it from these paper cases from the the physical world. And the key things, it's a threefold threefold showing that the government has to make. They basically have to show that they already know that the evidence to be produced to, to be compelled exists, that it is in the possession or control of the target, and that it is authentic. And the reason that we have these requirements is because although there is a divide between, compelled testimony, and compelled production of physical evidence, what the court has recognized, and this is key, is that the compelled production of physical evidence will sometimes, often, always have implicit communications of fact. So you can imagine back in a paper-based world, I like to to keep these analogies in mind, imagine in a legal gambling house, there is a journal of all the bets made, the, the, the book for the house. It can, its production can be compelled as a physical thing after Boyd is overruled. That is something that is eligible for compelled production. But if you ask a target or, or tell them they must produce that book, they are saying something more when they come forward with the book than just the book itself. They are saying implicitly, this book exists. I have access to it. I might even control it, but at the very least, I have access to it. And if I'm giving you the the sports book that you asked for, I'm also saying that it's authentic to the extent that I'm saying this is the physical item that is responsive to the subpoena that you have served on me. And so those three pieces of implicit communication are testimonial, testimonial in the sense that they communicate facts from the target's brain. And that is where the Fifth Amendment draws the line. If that drew a hard, insurmountable line, we'd basically be back effectively in the outcome of Boyd for different reasons, is that then you wouldn't be able to compel production of physical evidence because there are these implicit testimonial communications. So the workaround here is the foregone conclusion doctrine. If the implicit testimonial communications that accompany the production of real or physical evidence do not add anything significant, little or nothing, to the sum total of the government's case, then the foregone conclusion exception applies and the target can be compelled to produce. And that is the existence, possession, and authenticity of the evidence to be produced. So you can now imagine, as we move from that analogy of a physical item like a a sports book, to production of a passcode to a cell phone. Imagine a retail drug delivery operation. The, the, The law enforcement agents are already in possession of the device. They want to get into it, but the circumstances by which they've come into possession of this Maybe they've picked it up from a runner. Maybe it's been picked up in a stash house along with narcotics and and other accoutrements, right? So if you know the passcode to that cell phone that is already in some way linked to a retail drug delivery operation, your production of the passcode says more than just the passcode itself. It says, well, this is subject to debate, right? And we're, we're gonna get into this, what exactly it says. But at the very least, let's say it associates you with that cell phone. And that is an incriminating piece piece of testimonial communication that you were compelled to produce. Compelled because you were told you had to produce the passcode, incriminating because it links you to a phone that is connected to an illegal operation Um, and, sorry, compelled because you were told to do it. So it's, and it's testimonial because it is saying something about your knowledge of a factual situation communicating implicit facts.
0: And Gabe, I'll just say here, I mean, I think as you guys will see as we get into the these subsequent slides, really the bulk of the debate has come down to exactly what are you revealing and what is it and what is what you're revealing say, you know, the, the key distinction is seems to be, you know, as we'll talk about on the next slide in Massachusetts, the court has essentially said, well, you're only... Admitting that you possess the passcode and that the passcode is authentic, but that but a lot of opposing positions tend to take the position, tend to take the tack of, well, if we're going to apply an apples to apples active production document, then really the focus should be on what is actually being turned over, which is the contents of the phone that the passcode unlocks. And so that tends to be the key point of distinction, whether you're advocating for the government position or uh for your client. And we'll kind of dive into some of the other nuances, uh, but first, I think we're just going to discuss where we are in Massachusetts um, in terms of what controls here from a state level under Article. Oh, having a spaz twelve, right, Gabe? Sorry. Yep, Article twelve.
1: So um, that, I mean, that, and Jamie, as always, is exactly right, and I think that is the flashpoint, and that is the debate, and we're we're just certainly going to get into it. And the the interesting thing for us is, you know, we're we're talking to mass practitioners. We do have that possibility of SCOTUS visiting this at some point, And for all of us, even here in Mass, there could be federal habeas review or you could be practicing in federal court. And so that, that broader view is important. But most of the key issues that arise as you try to apply this paper based doctrine to the digital space have been resolved in Massachusetts in a pair of cases from the SJC, Gelfgat in 2014, and then Jones in 2019. And what I think we're going to do is, you know, we have, so I can give the spoiler alert, we've resolved the, is it the passcode or the contents that's the focus? In mass, it's the passcode. What's the standard of proof? We're gonna talk, it's beyond a reasonable doubt. But rather than do it as an overview, as we go through each hot button issue and we highlight the splits in authority, I will literally highlight what the mass position is. Cause I, I go nuts with my slides and I'll throw in yellow, something that's a site to a mass case. And hopefully we'll try to remember that. I don't wanna skip over it too much because it's so important for those of us who are practicing in state court in mass, it is the binding law of the Commonwealth at this point, but we're trying to kind of also step back and take the broader view. And one of the interesting things is in mass, not only are the subsidiary questions kind of settled, but the, the gating question of does this active production foregone conclusion exception doctrine apply to pass codes at all has actually been settled here for almost a decade. It is not settled. There are plenty of states that don't have any decisions yet on it at the the published appellate level. And there are some jurisdictions that have said definitively, it doesn't apply here, right? We're not going to use this. So Commonwealth versus Davis, a Pennsylvania case, as I recall, the the high court uh, in Pennsylvania actually flipped a lower court ruling that said that it would apply. And they, they, you know, know, we'll, we'll talk about the reasoning, but you just can't use the foregone conclusion exception there to compel production of a computer password.
0: And now, uh, I'll just note now, Gabe's modest, uh, so he won't mention to you, but I will, that he was actually the attorney for the Commonwealth, and Commonwealth v. Jones. So this is a, an issue that he's well, tra- well, well versed in. Also note, you know, Davis, which probably takes the most extreme position in terms of like a defense-friendly position, if you're trying to Craft an argument here that's gonna, you know, preserve the record for a federal claim or maybe hope that the change in the court will lead to a change in the law. Davis, like Gabe says, essentially says, we're not even going to ask whether the government can satisfy the foregone conclusion exception. We're gonna say this was a unique doctrine that was specific to the production of like business records and is a narrow doctrine, and it doesn't lend itself to application in the digital space. So we aren't gonna apply it at all. And they actually cite uh former justice link's concurrence from davis in which she essentially says that the majority's decision here in mass i think she said it uh, sounds the death knell for death constitutional knell. protection of compelled self-incrimination and they quote her verbatim and they say we agree with the i mean it's a functional dissent but the concurrence of of the justice link in massachusetts that this is not the right way to go about uh applying this doctrine
1: And so, you know, I think, you know, on the next slide, we're going to talk a little bit more. Um, But actually, Jamie, if you could go back one second. Yeah, I can do that. No problem. Right. Um, So, what you see also, though, is there are state, there are plenty of state cases where, at either their intermediate appellate court level or their court of last resort, they have issued finding, published decisions on this. um, And the parties have sought cert, right? And SCOTUS so far has consistently denied it. It's not that this issue, hasn't made it to their, at least their initial radar screen, right? I think there's at least three or four examples um, where part is a petition for cert and cert's been denied. You know, I don't have the inside baseball understanding. I'm not gonna speculate about why that is or if or when they're gonna take the case, but it does mean that whatever we think has been resolved, because so much of this relies on the Fifth Amendment jurisprudence. And, you know, we'll talk about this in a moment also, state analogs to the Fifth Amendment that are often interpreted in parallel with the Fifth Amendment, a lot could change depending on if this gets taken up and what approach SCOtus ends up taking on it. And I think in that respect, one of the things that kind of makes this still exciting and and lively is that we have sitting justices on the court now who have indicated that they might want to go back to that Boyd paradigm, right? Go back to the approach to the Fifth Amendment from the the late 1800s that it is more protective than what the the kind of Fisher revolution would tell us it is now. And so this is specific, this is concrete. Justice Thomas in Hubble, one of the, the main cases here that launches that sea change, the quartet of compelled production cases of Fisher, Doe One, Doe Two and Hubble, Thomas concurs and he basically says that there's evidence that the Fifth Amendment protects not just incriminating testimony, but any incriminating evidence I would be willing to reconsider the scope and meaning of the self-incrimination clause, right? So that's there on record. And then Justice Gorsuch, much, much more recently um, in Carpenter, another case near and dear to to mine and Jamie's heart in the sense that all this exciting digital evidence stuff that is happening in the last five, 10 years, um, Carpenter, obviously a CSLI case, a game changer in a lot of ways for third party doctrine, presentation for another time. (laughs) Um, Gorsuch, in in his dissent there, says, basically echoing the kind of language that Thomas used, there's a point where he says, you know, we have to be careful about returning to Boyd. But he also says there's substantial evidence that the privilege against self-incrimination was originally understood to protect a person being forced to turn over potentially incriminating evidence. So that idea of the journal and the sports book, your private papers, those things that can that you can compel production of them under the current law, as long as you can satisfy the foregone conclusion exception, there is a possibility that if SCOTUS takes this case with the right configuration of justices voting in the right way, um, that we could go back to a totally different paradigm or go forward to a totally different paradigm. So there's Thomas, there's Gorsuch, and then I haven't read it, but one of the things you'll see because uh, I haven't had the time, I wish I did. Is Alito also authored a law review article back in 1986, I think, that indicates that he too would be receptive to perhaps a broader conception of the Fifth Amendment's protection. So this is very much still a live issue. We don't know where it will go if and when it gets to the court. And I, I'd, I'd be remiss if I didn't also say that the federal law is not the only law on this topic. Jones actually. Was decided to a large extent under Article Twelve. Other cases that come up have been decided based on the state analogs to the Fifth Amendment. And you know, one of our friends, Dave Rangavis, has written you know a fascinating article about what it would mean if we looked more to state constitutional protections in analyzing these compelled production issues.
0: And actually, I'll just think as a further shout out to I mean, it is an interesting article. Obviously, as a prosecutor, I. I have a different view on the propriety of this under the Fifth Amendment and Article 12. But I mean, Dave rightly points out that our Article 12 actually reads closer to how the Fifth Amendment was interpreted in Boyd. And so it's an it's an it's actually interesting that notwithstanding the fact that uh, our state analog speaks more generally to evidence and not to testimony uh, that the SJC still concluded, um, albeit on a high burden of proof beyond a reasonable doubt, that that the compelled production doctrine can apply in this context and that you can apply the foregone conclusion exception to allow it. So, but Dave raises some very interesting points in that, in that article, I highly recommend it.
1: So here we are, um, and we're, we're going to go through kind of some of the hotter issues now. And the the first one is the one that we alluded to with the, the Pennsylvania case Davis is does the foregone conclusion exception apply to compelled passcode production at all? We're going to talk about that for a couple minutes, but I just want to kind of show you also where we're going. Passcode versus content, the the biggest single question of what is actually being compelled, a little bit about how the authentication requirement from the original paper cases maps to production of a passcode, Um, the standards of proof and the use of this term reasonable particularity. And then finally, you know, what does production of a passcode look like? And you'll see actually, the slide headings for the whole presentation say compelled passcode entry. Because at this point, that's the constitutionally safest way to look at it. But I do want to kind of step back and and talk about how else it could look. but for the for the question of does it apply at all?
0: Um, yeah, you want me to jump in here, Dave, Or
1: Yeah, please.
0: You know, I will so to the extent that there is an argument that it doesn't apply at all, and I think that that, as we noted, is sort of most clearly articulated in the Davis case from Pennsylvania. Um, But there is also the CO case, which will be cited on the next slide, which ultimately does apply it. Well, they conclude it's not applicable based on the government showing in their case, but then they go on to explain why it probably shouldn't be applicable. These if you're going to argue that it doesn't apply at all, you're probably hewing more towards the Riley Carpenter argument. Right. Which is this whole digital is different. And then cell phones and i mean to a lot, to an equal extent computers are completely different are completely different contexts there's a much greater privacy right than there is when we're talking about the production of say tax documents or business papers and that this narrow document doctrine the compelled production doctrine which as these cases note has only actually been applied by the supreme court on one occasion in fisher to actually compel production of these documents and all the other cases uh DOE 1, I mean, Do 2 is a little, Gabe will talk about Do 2 a little after, but in DOE 1 and Hubble, uh, they basically conclude that the government didn't meet its threshold. So the, so the Supreme Court has essentially only found the foregone conclusion exception satisfied on one occasion. Um, and in Davis and CEO, they kind of note this footnote in Fisher, which talks about how there might be privacy concerns that uh, counsel against the application Uh, of the act of production doctrine using a subpoena if, for example, the target was a personal diary, right? And I think at this point, we would all agree, uh, as the court recognized in Riley, like if an alien were to arrive on our planet, they would think that phones are essentially an extension of our bodies, and we keep all of our personal information on them, and it's a much larger volume, possibly as much as a terabyte of personal information on our phones. And so if we're going to say that there are potentially privacy concerns in using a subpoena and using the act of production doctrine to get say a personal diary, I think you'd have a really hard time arguing that we're even in the same realm when you're talking about computers and cell phones because there's just such a large volume of um of, you know, centrally located personal information that reveals all the intricacies of our private lives. So that's really the the place where any argument against the application of the doctrine, doctrine in the first instance is going to start, and it's probably going to cite Riley, it's going to cite Carpenter, it's going to note that in those cases, the Supreme Court essentially said that you can't uncritically apply prior precedent to new paradigms, and that this digital is different is a new paradigm, and that we can't apply a doctrine that originated in the 70s and 80s in the context of paper, right? I think in Hubble, um, which, incidentally, is interest and interestingly, um, Hubble was an associate attorney general in the Clinton administration. In this case, arose in the context of the Whitewater investigation, but uh, Hubble was compelled to produce, I think, roughly thirteen thousand pages of documents. If you if you the digital equivalent of a, of that on a cell phone just doesn't scale because uh, even at the time of of Riley, like a sixty four gigabyte uh, cell phone is going to contain roughly. The equivalent of 400 million pieces of paper. So you can only imagine how much that is now with 256 gigabytes, half a terabyte, a full terabyte. So it's just not really the same. And that's where you would essentially ground your argument um, if you were going to argue that it didn't apply at all.
1: So I, I, as usual, I totally agree with Jamie. I think I think there are three main things that would drive this to it doesn't apply at all. The f- the first would be, you know, the digital is different. And that if, if Riley can do away with the search incident to arrest exception for cell phones, and Carpenter can do away with third-party doctrine for cell site location information in the hands of the carrier, then digital is different could do away for compelled production when it applies to digital passcodes. I think the second thing Jamie hit on, it and I just want to follow up, is there's this trend in the in the cases that are at least skeptical, if not more, of the compelled production applied to passcodes that say this is kind of a narrow exception. I have my own view on that, that I that that I don't think is, you know, I think there's a bigger story to tell is. What the Supreme Court has applied, it doesn't reflect all the Circuit Court applications and State Court applications of this doctrine. You know, the State, the Supreme Court, Scotus says it once, and the rest of us are talking about it for fifty years. That's how that dynamic works. But I think that's that's the so digital is different. You know, Scotus hasn't revisited this. You know, and then the third piece is working with the Scotus doctrine on its own. What the, the Doe case that, that that Jamie alluded to is where. The equivalent of a compelled production was allowed. Was the SCOTUS allowed the government to compel someone to sign a consent directive? But they they edited the consent directive, the government so much that it didn't actually implicitly communicate anything. It was for foreign banks and DOE, and all it basically said was, "If there's any bank account, you have my permission to give the, the United States government the information." So if we focus on what's implicitly communicated. The person signed their name to something that basically said, I'm not saying that there's any accounts. I'm not saying I own them. I'm just saying, if you happen to have one in your bank, you can turn the, the documents over. So then the third piece of this comes from a dissent by Justice Stevens in one of the Doe cases that then I think becomes, I think he writes the majority in Doe 2. Then he writes the majority in Hubble. And it's this distinction between the combination to a safe and a key. And what what the idea is, we know that you can compel production of a key, a physical item that you fit into a physical lock because of that, that Schmerber line, right? There's a difference between testimony and real and physical evidence, and a key is clearly on one side of that divide. It's real or physical evidence. But that a combination to a safe, although it also facilitates opening a locked door, is on the other side of that line. Um, and so I think that the third avenue for people who want to just say that the compelled production doctrine doesn't apply at all, and you see this in the case, law say, this isn't a physical key. This is the equivalent, you know, functionally indistinguishable from the combination to a safe. So, so now we're going to get into the actual, the, the nitty gritty of the issues themselves. And the first one is this one we've been teasing right along is what is actually being compelled This is where
0: most of the heavy lifting is being done in the cases.
1: Right. So if you feel like we're running behind in the count, you're right. But don't worry, because once we get past this, it's kind of the downhill slope. Um, So, you know, the the real question here is what piece of evidence is playing the analogical role of the tax paperwork in Fisher? If we know that you can compel tax paperwork, you know, and, and other physical items like that, what is the analog in the digital space? Is it the passcode to the advice? to the device that is being compelled, the evidence that is being sought by the government, or is it the files on the device? And obviously, because we've gone through that threefold showing on the compelled production, uh, uh, a foregone conclusion exception, what the evidence being compelled is determines what you have to show exists, is in the possession of the target, and is authentic. So there's a huge split in authority. We have the password-focused cases that say, you know, Again, no, no spoilers. I think this is the one that Jamie and I think is the right one, maybe because of our prosecutorial backgrounds. But the password focus is the only fact that is conveyed by compelled production of a passcode is that the target knows the passcode and can access the device. So your are on what is that implicit piece of testimonial communication. If you are compelled to produce the passcode, all it says is, I, the target, know this passcode. It doesn't even say, this is my phone. That might be a fair inference from it, but you could know the passcode to a phone that isn't yours, a significant other's, a friend's, whatever. Mm -hmm.
0: Then then there's the
1: content focus cases. The content focus cases say that the evidence that is being sought, the evidence that is being actually produced, is not the passcode. That is a means to an end that is at best a proxy for the real evidence that the government wants, and that is the files on the device itself. And if that's true, then the foregone conclusion exceptions requirements apply to the, the contents. And you can see how that would work. That means the government would have to show that they already know that the contents, these files exist, that they are in the possession of the target and that they are authentic. Right. And, and like
0: Gabe said, as Gabe alluded to before, right, it's like the actual act of turning over the documents in the compelled production cases is not the testimonial act. It's those implicit uh, communications that accompany that—that that the the target has selected these specific documents, um, and controls them and has access to them, uh, and that they are authentic, right? So the cases that are content focused, which if you're a defense attorney, are the ones you're going to want to be citing—Davis, Co. These other cases that we're going to show you on the next slide—they view the provision of the passcode as the non-testimonial act that is the equivalent of the the turning over of the papers, but then they view the actual files on the device as the equivalent of the fact that the suspect selected specific files to turn over right so they're they're not limiting their focus to simply that the suspect is conveying they know the passcode they're saying well the suspect is also essentially admitting to the possession and authenticity of all these files that are contained on the phone um, which is quite incriminating and testimony and
1: and that's that's exactly right and i think fascinating is not just that this is dividing the courts across the country, but you see it dividing jurisdictions. Florida is remarkable in this respect is they have at least now three different published decisions from their intermediate level of, the, of court of appeals there. And the way that that, that system works, which I'm not too familiar with is they develop their own you know, precedents within their sphere, and it so far hasn't been resolved by the court of last resort in Florida. Um, and also, you see that the panels on these appellate cases themselves, you know, Justice Link's functional dissent, her concurrence in Jones is a, is a divided panel. Many of these court of last resort decisions are divided panels in one way or another. So, this next slide, you know, I, I think whenever Jamie and I do a presentation, I, I'm at risk of being evicted for all the real estate I take up on these slides. But he indulged me this one. It's a little chaotic, and I, I definitely apologize for that. But I'm trying to show a couple things here. One is just how much ink this issue has gotten. And this is, believe it or not, just a sampling. We could go on and on and on, unpublished cases, intermediate appellate court cases. And, and, you know, every three, six months, there's another one as it reaches the court of last resort or or an appellate court in each jurisdiction. Um, But I also want everybody to have the resources to kind of go and track this down themselves because it's a growing and and big body of case law, but it's still manageable. You can still get your arms around it, reading it in you know, a few days, take a week and, and surf through it. And so we've got the password-focused cases and the content-focused cases in Massachusetts. We are, as of now, clearly, definitively on the password-focused side of the line. The SJC and Jones says, you know the, the thing that is being produced is the passcode, the implicit testimonial communication is that I know the passcode, that is the thrust of that decision. And so in Massachusetts, the thing being produced is the passcode. But there are still many cases focused on the content. And I've highlighted in blue here, this in-ray grand jury from the 11th Circuit. And if you check out the date of it, it's 2012, which means it is one of the earliest cases on this topic. And I think certainly it might be the earliest fully published decision from an appellate court on this topic. And so by its, by its prominence in, in the development of the law, it's had an anchoring effect. And it is listed on the content side in most people's account of where the courts are shaking out on this. But what's fascinating about that is that so much turned in that case, and by extension, the development of our case law, on how the government phrased what it was requesting. The subpoena request in, in Ray grand jury in that 11th circuit case, said that the, the government was seeking, and I have it here, um, that they wanted the production of, I think they said, the unencrypted contents of the device, something like that. Um, right. The grand jury subpoena required. The, the sorry, takeaway required. being they were focused, they were focused not on
0: the passcode or on compelling the passcode, but on getting the contents, the files. Right.
1: To produce the unencrypted contents of the digital media and any and all containers or folders thereon, the idea is just as a thought experiment. Imagine the government had structured, had crafted the subpoena to say, "We are seeking production of the passcode." It could have changed how everybody looked at this for the last decade. But because they said they wanted the unencrypted contents, there was a content focus from the beginning. And so, for the prosecutors, you know, on this webinar. Think about that and make sure that what you're asking for is actually what you want and that you are keeping it as narrow as you no no, no broader than you need to to get access to the device. For our defense attorneys, really pay attention to that, because if they're asking for more than the password, then you have different evidence that is at least facially explicitly being sought to be compelled. And we sort of. Think- Oh,
0: sorry. Yeah. Sorry. No pleasing. Please. I was just going to say, you know, we've talked about what what you're going to argue if you're on the content focused side, right? I mean, you're going to argue you're going to focus. I'm not going to go ahead and even into some of these because I've talked about them already, but you're going to argue that the privacy interests are much greater and that the, the new paradigm of digital evidence doesn't easily lend itself to the application of a document that focused on the production of paper. But I think the other thing that a lot of these cases focus on is this idea that if we're gonna talk if we're gonna say that this doctrine applies, then you have to apply it apples to apples. And the way this would apply back in the days of Hubble and Doe and Fisher is the government would specifically I, to, to have the foregone conclusion exception apply, the government would have to specifically identify and prove that it knew what documents existed. And so these content-focused cases say, well, if if you're gonna apply this fairly, apples to apples. You both a have to be able to, with some degree of particularity, identify what files are on the phone or the computer that you want to access, and also that you should only be able to access those documents because, you know, if you have a search warrant to access a phone and you're using a compelled uh, passcode motion or an All writs Act, uh, depending on your jurisdiction, motion to seek that passcode, once you get access to the computer and you conduct your forensic extraction, you're gonna have the entirety of the device and you're going to be able to search it. And you may come up with other incriminating evidence and files that you didn't necessarily know about. So the people who argue in favor of content in the cases that take this tack tend to say, listen, A, you have to be able to identify that some of these documents exist. Uh, with whatever confidence interval we determine is applicable, but also that you really shouldn't be able to use anything else that you find on that device beyond what you know exists. Because if you do so, you're not really there's you're not really uh, properly applying the doctrine. You're going beyond its its original intended scope, particularly given the broad scope of the Fifth Amendment and what it's intended to protect.
1: So, and, and I think you know there's the academic literature is also addressing this. Um, we have some sites if people are, are interested in that. But I think what Jamie was just getting to just now also implicates this question of which of the, the key Bill of Rights Amendments are actually implicated here. And it's a question of the interest, from my perspective, of the interest protected by the Fourth Amendment versus those protected by the Fifth Amendment. And you know, I think Jamie's exactly right in articulating what this content concern is and giving it you know, the, the attention it deserves and the respect it deserves. But when you think about it is, Generally speaking in these cases the government already has a search warrant for the device before they go to compel production of the passcode or in conjunction with it sometimes and I'm not going to pass on whether the pro- the protocols right sometimes they seek production of the passcode through the search warrant obviously there's different standards there um, and and the cases are hashing that out but the extent to which you are free to search within the device in my humble opinion should be governed by the 4th amendment as opposed to the 5th amendment which is protecting compelled self-incrimination. So, we're going to now just kind of quickly go through these other hot button issues. The authentication requirement, this is a direct holdover from the document cases. The idea here is if somebody says, you know, you've requested this 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 document, this sports book, I'm producing it, I'm implicitly con- you know conceding that it exists, that I have possession of it and that it is the sports book that you requested. And that is an authentication aspect. And it's the government's concern here is, that the, or the, the case law's concern is the government can't rely on the target's truth-telling. So they have to have some other way of verifying that this thing is what it purports to be other than the fact that the target produced it. And it it has ramifications for admissibility at trials that you'd have to have some other way to get it in to evidence because you can't say, well, obviously it's the thing that it purports to be because we got it from this target. So there's a in authority here between the, the camp that says, look, passcodes, once they're produced, are self-authenticating because if it unlocks a device, Wingo, Bamo, you've, you've got it. It's it's the right password um, to the cases that say, no, 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 that would be ex post-authentication and you need to have a method, you need to have X anti-authentication. Massachusetts, I'm not going to say we are firmly on one side, but we're pretty, pretty clearly in the, we don't have to worry too much about authentication for passcodes. Footnote fourteen in Gelfgat that just you know kind of decryption doesn't present the same kind of authentication issue as compelled production. I'll also just say even though we need to move on, is my answer to the ex anti authentication is what the government needs is a mode of authenticating prior to getting the the passcode produced. They don't actually have to have authenticated. That would be kind of not just circular but that almost metaphysically impossible. But anyway, that is the trend in the case law. Uh, for authentication. The next one is this standard of proof issue. You're gonna we're gonna talk a little bit about reasonable particularity because it is a holdover from the document production cases. And you see the courts wrestling with, hey, we've got this language, we have to find some way to apply it. You'll see people mentioning preponderance of the evidence, clear and convincing. In mass, we are clearly on the beyond the reasonable doubt. This is explicit, it's under Article and 12 and Jones. We're the only jurisdiction that's beyond a reasonable doubt, right,
0: Gabe, that actually applies the foreground conclusion exception, I think.
1: You know, it's hard for me to say definitively to keep up with all the, the new cases that have come out, but certainly I checked, put it that way. Yeah. When Jones came out, we were the only ones. And I, I, to be candid, I don't think preponderance of the evidence is ever going to fly here. There is a level of certainty and confidence baked into the term foregone conclusion. If I say it's a foregone conclusion that a moving truck's going to get starroed in August, that doesn't mean <laughs> it's a 50-50 shot, right? So we are in the beyond a reasonable doubt. If you are showing that it's a foregone conclusion that the target knows the code, um, that, that they possess it, that it exists, and it's authentic. You have to do it beyond a reasonable doubt and mass.
0: And then, as to as Gabe was alluding to, as to the reasonable particularity requirement, it's whether whether it
1: matters or not in this new context.
0: Sort of depends on your position on the cases, right? If you're taking the the pro-government position, which is that we're just talking about does the person know the passcode, and that's the only thing that's theoretically being revealed that's testimonial. The reasonable particularity doesn't really matter, right? Because You either know the passcode or you don't know the passcode. You can't really know it with reasonable particularity. But if you're taking the position of Davis and CEO and people who are advocating on behalf of their clients to not have to turn this sort of thing over, then it matters to you a lot, right? As Justice Link noted in Concurrence and Jones, because you're going to say, well, but the contents of the device do matter and the government should have to be able to identify those. And most of these decisions that hack to this is something else the government has to prove above and beyond the suspect knows the passcode, tend to use reasonable particularity as the standard with which the government can identify specific files or data on the device.
1: And the the hot take on that is that, you know, they use it in the document cases to say, if you're going to ask someone to produce a document, you have to describe it with reasonable particularity so that you're not co-opting their brain to select the documents that are responsive to your subpoena. You want to minimize that. Um, in that sense, it's arguably not a standard of proof. It's a way to describe something. But you know, some some courts reject its application. Jones does that in in um pretty clearly in the majority decision, but some courts, and Jamie's right, the content ones are still using it. And it makes sense to use it with contents because you'd have to describe, describe those with reasonable of particularity.
0: Um and so, then, sorry, yeah. did you have something else you want to say on that slide? Nope. Um, so really briefly, obviously, we're trying to take both sides on this, but we also just thought it would be useful to kind of highlight the sort of things if you are a prosecutor or if I guess if you're a defense attorney and you want to ha- highlight the absence thereof, uh, are, are these are the kinds of things you're going to look for in trying to establish that foregone conclusion that somebody knows the passcode, right? Obviously, admissions that someone makes are going to be the best. In Gelfgat, I think the suspect actually is like, yeah, of course, I know all my devices are encrypted and only I know how to unencrypt them. Um, But, you know, other things like is the device one of many that's seized in like a large scale warrant that's searching for child pornography? Or is it a cell phone that was in the suspect's pocket when it was taken from them? Um, Is there booking video or social media posts, things of that nature that show the individual with the phone? Um, Do you have other witnesses who have seen the individual with the phone? Does subscriber information for the device, if it is a cell phone, come back to the target or maybe it comes back to like a family member or a third party which might weaken the link. Um call logs is is the phone being used to call people that you know are associated with your target, family, friends, etc. And then, you know, location information is the phone if again, I hue towards phone for a lot of this stuff because it's not as computers tend to be more stationary but you know is the device moving around in a manner that's consistent with the pattern of movement of the target it's going from their residence to where they work for example or to where they go to school um these are all sorts of things that you can identify and obviously timing matters These motions, right? Because as time goes on, if you're a defense attorney, even assuming the government can meet its burden, you're you're going to be able to credibly argue that, like, well, my suspect may, my, my client may have known the passcode, this very complicated passcode to this device 18 months ago when this litigation first started, but they legitimately don't remember it now. They haven't had access to this device this entire time. They've had a new device, they don't know anymore. And courts have accepted that argument in certain cases, so I think time is somewhat of the essence in trying to, if you are a prosecutor and trying to get these motions filed and litigated. Um, and in some instances, courts have kind of satisfied this by having a suspect say write the passcode down and put it in a envelope, which the court keeps uh, pending the outcome of the litigation. But as Gabe noted. There could potentially be a problem with actually requiring somebody to to write something down because it's a little different. You've actually produced it on a piece of paper that's like itself a piece of evidence now as opposed to just entering it into the device and facilitating access.
1: And that's so actually that tees, up, that tees up our That up our next slide um, very quickly before we we get into you know the biometrics is you know there's this the last split in authority I want to visit is what can you make the target do with this passcode? Can you have them state it, you know, tell you it orally, write it on a piece of paper or only enter it? And there's a group of courts that say the passcode itself has no testimonial significance. The government didn't compel the target to pick that passcode. So it's not protected by the Fifth Amendment. Go ahead and say it or write it. And other courts that say, no, 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 that's a hard line. You cannot go past that. No oral or written testimony. That's That's not just an implicit testimonial communication. That is testimonial evidence. That is the core of the Fifth Amendment. Mass, I'm going to say, we're we're officially undecided. Uh, you know, A footnote in Jones says, we're not going to resolve this, but Jones itself is limited to physical entry of the passcode. I think that's just where we're at. And I think that is also what, what was at issue in Gelfgat
0: in terms of how they went to proceed. And by the way, if you're looking for an example of like the protocol and procedure that was followed, uh, there is a footnote in the Gelfgat case that essentially outlines how the attorney general's office was seeking to have the defendant proceed in that case. Um, If you're a prosecutor and you're looking for some guidance on how you might go about that, Um, you know, obviously logistics are going to be a consideration in these. You don't want to, if you're a prosecutor, you don't want to give uh, your target the opportunity to potentially enter a faulty password or trigger a wiping mechanism on a device. Um, You want to ensure that the procedure that the court sets up kind of sets certain guidelines for the target, so that there are clear consequences if they do attempt to do something of that nature. The other uh, interesting issue is what the actual remedy is for noncompliance. I mean, a lot of these cases lead to long litigation that, whether it ends up prevailing for the government or not, doesn't actually lead to the evidence they're seeking, right? Because if you're a suspect and there's some seriously incriminating evidence on your device, you I mean, particularly if you're a murder suspect and you're ultimately incarcerated, being held in contempt doesn't really matter to you very much uh, because you're probably already being held and you're probably not inclined to give the government additional incriminating evidence that helps them convict you. Um, One alternative that uh, that government attorneys may be able to use is, I mean, if the defendant refuses to provide the passcode after a court order enters, then they've essentially refused to to comply with a, a valid court order um, and their refusal to comply may evidence consciousness of guilt. So you may be able to seek an instruction at trial uh, that the defendant was ordered to do something and refused to do so. Um, but you know the degree to which you're gonna be able to actually enforce this order is gonna be dependent on like what the case is, what the defendant's current incarceration status is. Um, you know, So in a lot of these cases, it doesn't actually lead to the provision of the passcode, even where the government is successful uh, in litigating this kind of motion. Um, and in asked- Massachusetts, I'll just note that um, This is not the case everywhere, but in Massachusetts, the courts also explicitly limit the prosecution's ability to use the act of production, the provision of the passcode into the device against the defendant at trial. All right. So we've talked a lot about passcodes, um, and now we're going to bleed over briefly into biometrics. And the reason I feel confident we can do this very quickly is because there's essentially a lot of uh, overlap here. I think for the biometrics argument, the Justice Stevens analogy of a Uh, Pass of a uh, combination to a safe versus a key to a safe is much more apt because here we seem, at least the case law seems to recognize a much clearer distinction. When you're talking about providing a passcode, there is more of an argument that it's testimonial and that is akin to that safe combination. But a provision of, say, uh, holding your face up to the phone or putting a thumb or fingerprint uh, onto a device um, is much more akin to the kind of schmerber Uh, and other cases where we're talking about giving a blood sample or an exemplar of some kind or putting on a shirt. So that kind of act is a purely physical act, or at least if you're the government, that is what you're going to argue. They're going to say that this does not convey any inner workings of a target's mind, right? You could be asleep, you could be unconscious, and I would still be able to get those things from you without any inner working of your brain. It is just an immutable feature Uh, Of your body, and this exhibiting of a physical characteristic is not the same as a testimonial communication. Um, So there does appear to be a pretty extensive support in the case law for this. Some of these are cited here. Um, You know that you're not making a communicative assertion of fact when you are providing uh, a a fingerprint or uh, or a face scan. Although we will talk about some of the limitations briefly on a subsequent slide, Um, and that. sorry, and that the Riley Carpenter line of cases really aren't applicable here because as Gabe uh, alluded to before, they are primarily concerned with a fourth amendment question um, and that it's not, and that when we're talking about privacy, we're not really talking about a fifth amendment issue. Um, Now, I apologize for going fast just because we're (laughs) near the end here, but I do think a lot of the compelled passcode arguments lead over into the space. So, If you're a defense attorney, you are probably going to be making those same sorts of arguments that Riley and Carpenter do note that privacy, and and that footnote in Fisher, do note that privacy concerns can be relevant to a Fifth Amendment analysis. And That same idea that if you are giving access to a device that has a treasure trove of personal information, whether or not the actual physical act itself, holding your face up or putting a fingerprint onto the device. Is testimonial itself, it is still implicitly conveying things that you control all those files uh, and that they are authentic, right? So that, so that therefore there is a testimonial aspect, even though the act itself is a purely physical act and that the doctrine should apply. Mm-hmm. A lot of these cases also tend to focus more on this pragmatic argument, which is that, you know, a passcode and biometrics, although they are technically different things, are a means to the same end. They both provide access to a device. And in fact, sometimes, as we're all aware, whether it's that your phone has been turned off and then turned back on, or you've waited too long to try and access it, you can't even use biometrics to get into the, to your device. You have to use your passcode. So they are functional equivalencies. And these courts essentially rely on the idea that, and this is residents of Oakland in the United States v. Warren case. That if we're going to say that a passcode is testimonial and that you have to either can't apply the foregone conclusion doctrine or at least have to meet it to be able to access a device, that you can't then use biometrics as an end around to subvert that because it is getting you to the same functional place. Um, And so it does, again, amount to a functional equivalent of a passcode entry and therefore should be entitled to the same protection. Do
1: you have anything you wanted to say on this slide, Gabe? I mean, I I, I think you captured it perfectly. I disagree with that approach to legal analysis because I think for the most part, we want to focus on the interests of the defendant that are protected. It's how we access the information that is often the focus, not what we get, but for another time.
0: And and again, and that is the tack that I'm using that word a lot today, but that's that's the position that a lot of these uh, pro-biometrics case courts take, right? That yes, you are... Uh, incriminating yourself and you're pretty immediately incriminating yourself when you unlock a phone uh with your face but the immediacy or powerfulness of the incriminating inference is only one aspect of what you need you need something to be compelled you need it to be incriminating and you need it to be testimonial and because this is a purely physical act it doesn't require any mental exertion on your on the su- subject's part it really doesn't matter how incriminating the act is ultimately and what it it what incriminating inferences can be drawn from the fact that they were able to access the device. Um, Now, there are still some issues that have to be dealt with um, in the context of applying biometrics to unlock a device. Um, In terms of seizing the target, that's generally permitted by our case law, right? You're allowed to detain the target of a warrant if you're, for example, executing a search warrant at a house. Um, And also, the case law appears to suggest that you can use a reasonable amount of force to induce compliance, but there is a limitation, right? Reasonableness control. So for example, there's a case, um, I think it's a 2012 case out of New York, People v. Smith, where the court held that it was unreasonable to apply a taser to a suspect who refused to open his mouth for a buckle swab. So I mean, you can only, if you are in law enforcement, you can only take so many steps to induce compliance with the the order of a court that the suspect provide their biometrics. So if you have to have, say, like three or four police officers physically restraining someone on the ground, and the court may find that that's too much force. So you have to exercise reasonableness in the execution of the warrant and in compelling someone to provide biometrics to access their device. Um, I'm just going to skip the second part of that slide. The other things that are interesting are you really do, at a minimum, have to know that the device belongs to a particular person. So you can't, you really shouldn't be seeking to use biometrics in an any person present warrant, because in that circumstance, you probably don't actually know which device belongs to which person. So if you're just going in to seize every device that's in a house and it's a multi unit apartment or it's a, a family with a lot of people that live there and you can't really say which device belongs to who then you're probably not going to be able to use biometri- to compel people to use biometrics because you can't satisfy that basic reasonable suspicion or probable cause to believe that the device actually belongs to a particular person. Um, Obviously, the limitations with biometrics is also that you're not gonna be able to facilitate a forensic extraction with it. So while it may allow you to perform a physical analysis of the device and look at say an incriminating text message or a threatening photograph, if what you're actually looking for is deleted data or or non-public facing metadata or or location data that may not be public facing on the device, you're not really gonna be able to get that By accessing a device with biometrics, because you're still going to need a passcode to facilitate a forensic extraction on a Cellbrite or a gray key machine and do that full forensic analysis of the device. Also, if you are going to proceed with fingerprint biometrics, the government has to be the party that's selecting the fingerprint, because if the suspect is the one that is choosing which fingerprint to put on the device, and they are exercising their mental processes to tell you something about what fingerprint accesses the device, and that would be testimonial. So, if you are going the fingerprint route as opposed to facial features biometrics, you the government has to select the fingerprint. In order, for, I would argue, in order for that to be um, appropriate, although the case law hasn't really addressed that. Um,
1: I just yes. want to jump in for one second, real quick. Is this ties back to where we started with implicit testimonial communications? If I come up to Jamie and I say, "Jamie, put your thumb on this pad," and he does that. The implicit testimonial communication is that I, Jamie, know how to move my thumb on the pad. No Fifth Amendment problem with that communication. It's not incriminating. But if you come up to him and you say, put the finger that will unlock this, then the implicit testimonial communications start to be, I know which finger would unlock this, and I have that finger. And that's just to, to tie it back there. Yeah.
0: Um, and I think, Gabe, did we have any questions or anything?
1: No. I, 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 mean, time and I think we've hit
0: we've hit our uh, logical yeah. endpoints. So. Um, if you want to message either of us, you know, offline, we're happy to answer any questions you might have. Obviously, this was a very compact and abbreviated presentation of what is a fairly complex area of law where there's a lot of disagreement. Um, so we don't purport to have, you know, uh, fully fleshed everything out. But uh, as I think is evidenced, uh, we're both very enthusiastic about the topic, and we'd be happy to
1: discuss it further. Hopefully, we uh, adequately address both sides. Uh, and you know, gave you the
0: personal opinions,
1: and gave you the foundation for further research and further thought. You know, we we could talk about this for hours. So thanks everybody for sticking with us. Sorry that we ran a little bit over, but if there are any questions, happy to answer them now. If people want to stay, if not, also can wrap up and you know let everybody have their afternoon. So I don't see anything coming through um, our Q and A function, um, Devin. I don't know. I don't see anything on my end. Um, So I just wanted to hop on and say thank you so much to our panelists for speaking today. And thank you so much to our audience for joining us this morning. Um, I look forward to seeing you all at future events. Have a great day, everybody. Thanks, Thanks, Devin. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Jimmy.